Good morning, Crossroads. Thanks for connecting today. Uh, it's great that we can be connected, that we can worship together. Uh, it's a gift that God gives us, this corporate worship, and it's wonderful we can do that even though we're in a lot of places. Um, I want to start with some, some thoughts about where we're at culturally here in this coronavirus. You know, I, I've been thinking this week, what would Jesus say about all this? I think Jesus would say a lot of things. I think his invitation to us to come to him would be as strong as ever. I think another thing Jesus would probably say about this situation, this global pandemic, is that uh, both good and bad things happen to everybody because we live on a broken planet. We might say that somehow like this, stuff happens. It just does, whether good or bad. Jesus said the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. So it doesn't matter if you had a really good day, you might get more rain than somebody five miles away. That's absurd. Whether you're righteous or unrighteous, the rain falls on you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God doesn't respond to us that way. It's just the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. In Luke 13, Jesus was teaching and he talked about, he made this point there when he talked about a particular tower of sight. just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so we find ourselves in this pandemic in the wrong place at the wrong time. We're on the planet. And there's like virtually no place on this planet that is untouched by this. So that's important to just understand that this morning. And that's why it's so important in this time that we don't blame other people for what's going on. We don't need to blame the Chinese. We don't need to blame a political party. It's ridiculous. We don't need to blame somebody for a slow response or a healthcare system that maybe can't handle all this. Stuff happens, both good and bad, to everyone in a fallen world. The key is right now, how are we going to respond to this? How are we going to think about it? Say or post whatever we think without giving some consideration to that? Are we going to be bitter and blame other people or blame God? No, now's not the time to do any of that. What it's time to do is to turn to God and respond rightly to him with fresh zeal and passion. Because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to go back to our David series this morning. David gives us a really good model for how to recenter on God in a time of hardship. David's hardship he brought on himself. What we're going to study is David's response when confronted with what arguably could be the biggest or most devastating sin of his life. That was his sin with Bathsheba. We were going to tell you this story last week, but then we changed uh, direction in response to the what's happening in our culture. So let me briefly summarize this story. Most of you know it, but uh, it was later in David's life. Um, he'd had a lot of success, and so most of his enemies had been conquered. He had built up Jerusalem. There was a palace there that he lived in, and verse one of Second Samuel. 11 says, in the spring, when kings go off to war, David was at home. The verse says that he sent Joab, who was his general, he sent Joab off with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites, but David remained in Jerusalem. So let me just pause here and give a word of warning to all of us, particularly us as men. This is a dangerous spot for us to be in men. 
when we've experienced some level of success and then find ourselves with too much time on our hands, nothing good happens historically with men, whether in the scripture or within our lives. David was very successful and he found himself with too much time on his hands. Verse 2 says, one evening, and the word is translated, it means really either early evening or late afternoon. must have been taking a late afternoon nap, okay? His nap before supper, and he walks around on the roof of his palace. Nothing to do, too much time on his hands. And from there, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The messenger said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. In the scripture, we're given a list of 30 mighty men that David had. One of David's greatest warriors, a man of courage, a matter of more, a man of moral integrity, a great man. The husband of Bathsheba. He was off to war where David should have been. When David found out Uriah wasn't home, he sent messengers to get Bathsheba. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Hmm. Pretty big oops from David, a man after God's own heart. Clearly now augured into self-centeredness and trying to satisfy his own desires because I think he had too much time on his hands and he lost focus. And so he tried to satisfy his own desires. Now he finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant, and he's like, oh my goodness. He goes into cover-up mode, which is just further augering into self-centeredness. And so he sends a messenger to have Uriah come back to the city, and Uriah comes in to him, and David says, my, my friend, mighty man, how's the battle going? And Uriah tells him about it, and David says, well, now you can spend the night with your wife before you go back to the front lines expecting that he would lay with his wife and that David could blame the child that she had already conceived on her husband, a natural thing. But Uriah didn't go home and sleep with Bathsheba that night. Instead, he slept by a gate of the city. And in the morning when David found out he didn't go home and see his wife, he said, Uriah, why didn't you go home and be with your wife? And Uriah, this man of high moral integrity, said, it would be wrong for me to go sleep with my wife when all the king's troops are out on the front line sleeping in tents or in the, in the open air. What a man. And then David realized his cover-up plan is foiled, so he goes into plan B, even more vile than his first plan, to cover his own tracks and his own sin. And he writes a letter addressing it to Joab, his general. And the letter says, put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is fiercest as you attack the city, and then command everyone else to withdraw except Uriah so that he would be killed, so that David could take his widow as his own wife. He puts this in a letter, he seals it up, and you know how he delivered it to Joab? He gave it to Uriah to take to him. Uriah carried a letter of his own death sentence to General Joab. That's what Joab did. He withdrew. Uriah was killed. Joab sent message back to David after a period of grieving. David took Bathsheba into his palace as his wife. Scripture says, but the thing David did displeased the Lord. <laughs> you think? Here's our man after God's own heart, completely augured into self-centeredness of trying to satisfy his own desires and then cover up his sin. 
Now we're going to pick it up in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. I'd invite you to get your Bible there and open that. Follow along as I read, maybe several Bibles in your home. And this is now probably two to three years later. Because the child that Bathsheba conceived and birthed is referenced as a boy now in this text. So David has been living in self-centeredness and cover-up for several years at this point. And then God stirs the heart of a prophet named Nathan to come and confront David about this situation. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. When Nathan came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Let me pause there. Nathan is using a story, a metaphor, to compare what David did. And the idea here is the rich man in the story would represent David, the poor man would be Uriah. He says, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, or in David's case, wives. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. Verse 5 says, David burned with anger against that man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan the prophet said to David, you are the man. You're the man, David. You did this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. David, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arm. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Quite a bold confrontation from Nathan the prophet. And now what we want to study as our focus for the morning is how did David respond? And what we're going to see in five points here is that David recentered on God. He came out of his self-centeredness and he centered back on God. And even though our response to this coronavirus is not one of our own personal sin, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, this virus is just on us because of the general sinfulness and brokenness of our planet, wasn't anybody's fault, it just is. How David responded when rebuked is a great model for us to recenter on God right now in this really difficult time. 
That's how it's applicable. I encourage you to take notes. And what we're doing is we're, we're studying when rebuked, how David responded. So when rebuked, number one, David confessed his sin against the Lord. Number one, he confessed his sin against the Lord. After this long speech of Nathan the prophet, the confrontation, the admonition, and then the description of circumstances that were going to come because of this, here's what David said in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And all of a sudden, the first time in probably years, this crashed in on David. Certainly he knew he had sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Further horrific consequences. Now let me talk a little bit about confession. First of all, notice that David confessed his sin against the Lord. He didn't confess his sin against Bathsheba. Didn't mention he confessed his sin against um, Uriah or against Joab, his general who was complicit in Uriah's murder, or against his people. No, David first of all realizes, I have sinned against the Lord. And I think this gives us insight into what confession means. The word confess simply means to agree. So when we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God about what he says about our behavior. Confession is agreement or alignment with God. When we confess our sins, all we're doing is just aligning ourselves with God, saying, yes, God, you are right. I have sinned against you, and what I have done is vile in your eyes, and it's offense. It's an offense against a righteous God. Confession is the beginning of centering us back on God, alignment with the heart of God. David hadn't lived this way for years, for probably several years. He was probably living in selfishness. You, can, you understand how David was probably thinking. He's probably thinking and even said to God over the last few years, but God, Bathsheba was so beautiful. And what was she doing bathing on her roof when I'm out walking around? Come on, God. Who could resist that? He was probably rationalizing, saying, well, I'm king. I can have any woman I want. He might have even suggested to Bathsheba or To others, look, Uriah was a mighty man. He was a great fighter, but he he was a lousy husband. I can love you way better than he did, Bathsheba. This kind of rationalizing, these are all comments from a self-centered heart that's not aligned with God. But when David confessed his sins, he's agreeing with God, he's aligning with God and realizing, God, I have sinned against you. Confession restores our hearts to be centered on God, not our own self-interest. And so confession is really less about, and let me be careful here, but what we often think of confession I think is more of kind of the, and I say this not in criticism, but kind of the confessional booth confession, which is where we think if I just go and confess that, okay, I get points with God. If I go and do this or I confess my sins to somebody, then it's all okay and it's all good. As if confession is somehow conditional for something. And that's really not the case. Confession is just agreement with God. Confession is what we say and express when our hearts are restored, are being back aligned with God. Because we're in agreement with the heart of God over what we've done. Now I want to read to you, if you can turn to Psalm 51. 
And if you've never read Psalm 51, I would encourage you to dog ear your Bible here. Asterisk, put a stick at note, whatever you do to find text frequently. This is an awesome one. And when you get there, you'll realize, you'll see the heading before the text of Psalm 51 begins. You'll see that this was written by David. And the heading says, it's a Psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David wrote this in the middle of the context of our story that we're studying this morning. And this is a great expression of agreement or alignment with God about one's sin. Let me read it for you. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. These are the words of David in the context of being confronted by the prophet Nathan. David says, have mercy on me, God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Let me pause here. You see, he's recognizing his rebellion. He's calling a spade a spade. He's in agreement with God that this is sin and that he's dishonored God. And now he's saying it haunts me. And this leads into our next step that we'll get to when we confess our sins when we come into alignment with God about our own sinfulness we feel awful verse 4 against you and you alone have I sinned I've done what is evil in your sight see there he's confessing his sin against God yes it had implications for people but the primary offense is to God Verse 4, you will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. He's confessing, agreeing with God about the depth of his sinfulness. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me, God, from my sins, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. You see how he's aligning himself with God? He's coming back. He's coming back to God from this horrific sin and cover-up. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Then he becomes a little missional here, which we're also going to talk about. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. David says, I, I, you don't want my penance. You don't need that stuff. You own it all anyway. Here's what God desires from us as we recenter on him. The sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. And the word repentance is probably the best single biblical word to describe this response of David. And it really is broader than that. It's not only in a time of sin, but in a time of coronavirus, how we can recenter on God is really repentance. Instead of thinking of ourselves and being self-centered and augering deeply into that, we need to center on God. We need to center on God. And when David did that, what happened in his heart was sorrow for his sin. 
Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. He describes it as godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And he says that godly sorrow leads us to repentance. And so when David confessed his sin, when he came into alignment with God about his sin, he found himself sorrowful, and that sorrow caused him to turn from his sin and to depend on God in a new and fresh way. Then I love what David did next. Let's go back to our text and pick it up in verse 15. After Nathan the prophet had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, Bathsheba's little boy, and the boy became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. David's pleading for mercy. That's our second point. When we want to refocus on God and realign with him, the first thing we do is just get in the mind of God and view our behavior and our life and our heart as God views it. And then we'll plead for mercy. David pleaded for mercy. Psalm 51.1, he says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Now let me help you understand mercy. David knew that he didn't deserve mercy from what he had done. David knew that he did not deserve to have this child live because he had done it, had been vile, incredibly vile, and yet he appeals to God for mercy, which says a lot about his faith in God. Now, mercy is really God withholding from us what we deserve. In this case, David deserved nothing but condemnation, judgment, to be destroyed himself because he had violated a woman, he had committed adultery with her, he had her husband killed, and then he lied and covered things up, and the result of that was a child died. Horrific. He didn't deserve anything but condemnation, and yet he appeals to God's mercy. Mercy is God withholding from us what we really deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. When he gives us what we don't deserve, mercy is he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And David appeals to God's mercy. Church, in this time of coronavirus, just like the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, so a virus comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. doesn't matter because we're Christians. We're not exempt from this thing. But let us cry out to God for mercy. Yes, just like David, we are fallen sinners. We are broken. We have displeased and dishonored God in so many ways. We don't deserve to be rescued from this virus or anything else that comes on our planet. But let's appeal to the mercy of God. Let's appeal to the mercy of God. We see from the historical record of Scripture and even our own spiritual journey, we know that God delights in people who cry out to Him with desperation who plead with him for mercy. That's a way we actually honor God, and he desires that. Third point, and I love this. First, David just comes into an alignment with God by confessing his sins, and he pleads for mercy. Third thing he does, he worshiped. Isn't that awesome? He worshiped. Start thinking about ways you can worship in this season of coronavirus. Let's pick it up in verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were actually afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought why the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? 
he may do something desperate. David noticed that his guys were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead, and so he asked, is the child dead? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he'd washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Isn't that awesome? He worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. There's so many things I could say here, but I'm so impressed that David worshiped. This is a man who sinned profoundly, but now he's recentered on God through his confession of sins. He's pleading for mercy, and now when another crisis happens that's a just consequence of David's sin, David doesn't get angry at God. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't lash out. He worships. Oh, church, this is such a great word for us now. We got to worship in this season. And let me give a couple sidebars here. One thing you see here is the pattern of how we grieve. It's probably why we do what we do. When we lose a loved one, what do we do? We express our emotion, and then after a couple days, we shower, we clean up, we put our nice clothes on and our lotions on, and we come to a service where we worship with God's people. And then after we worship, what do we do? We eat, praise Jesus. David went to his house and had a meal. We share a fellowship meal. It's, it's a vital part of our grieving. This is the pattern we follow when we grieve. We come to the Lord and we worship. So church, we want to encourage you to ramp up your worship in this time of social distancing and however long this thing is going to last. Let's worship. We can do that like we are right now corporately, and we're going to keep pushing this live feed for you. We're going to do it Wednesday nights with the youth. We're going to have some other things that we try to push your way. But worship. Come together and worship God. It's the primary activity we can do to be centered on God is to worship Him. And so we want to encourage this corporate worship through the feed that we're giving you. Also, I want to encourage you, if you're a leader of your household, would you initiate family worship? Would you step that up right now? Most of you got time to do that. Your kids are home. They got time. And they're bored silly. What do I mean by family worship? Just take the lead as the leader of your household. Gather your family, the children. Maybe play a little game, do a little activity. And then just crack the word. Read them a story. Even just read them one verse. And ask them what they think about that. One of the great ways to do this with even high school students, middle school and elementary students, is read a verse of Scripture and then ask your children to draw a picture of it. Just read a verse of Scripture and ask your children, like, turn the other cheek. Okay, kids, write it, draw a picture of that. And then have them explain their picture. It's a beautiful way to engage with the Scripture and have family worship. Then sing a song or two. Pray together as a family. Initiate family worship during this season. So there's corporate worship, there's family worship, and then we want to so appeal to you to be worshiping personally through your personal quiet time, Jesus time, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm going to try to push out to you this week in a way some engagement with what we call the four P's around Crossroads, four words that start with P that are all descriptive of how we can engage in personal worship with God and engage with the Scripture. Um, these are in the book Consuming Christ that you can get on Amazon, or we have copies here. If we can get you one, this might be a great time for you to read that and to put into practice some of the principles there. And let me, I hope to engage with you this week and just show you how to do this and maybe do it with you. The first P is just kind of the word ponder, and it means to think deeply about God. You've got time to do that. 
Read a text of Scripture and what it reveals to you about God. Think about that. Meditate on that. Oftentimes, pondering God will lead us to praising Him, and that's another one of the P words. When we ponder God, it naturally flows into praise. So praise Him, declare His goodness, exalt His worthiness. Another P that the Scripture gives us is to pour out our hearts. Matt Strader talked about this last week from Philippians. When we pour out our anxiety, don't hold your fear in in this season. We all got it. It's there. Pour it out. Tell God about it. Tell him why you feel anxious. Tell him your worries about your children and your family. Tell him your economic worries and how are you going to sustain your family in this time. Children, pour out your hearts. You don't probably understand fully what's going on. You can't see your friends. You wish you could. Tell God about that. And oftentimes when we pour out our heart, then we're compelled to petition, which is simply to ask God, that's our fourth P, to ask God to pour into us his favor, his goodness, his love, his peace, so that his peace and his spirit might rule our heart in this time. Make a fresh commitment during this season to worship personally, as a family, and corporately. Fourth thing, and I love this, verse 21 Our fourth point is David accepted the new normal. David embraced or accepted the new normal. Let me read to you from our text again. Verse 21, after he got up and worshiped and ate, his attendants asked him, why are you acting this way, dude? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child's dead, you get up and eat? David answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I love, again, what David models for us here. One of the uh, great things um, that, that we need to do when we're grieving is to... Um, is to just ex- embrace the new normal. Embrace the new normal. And I think this is a sign of, of really good grieving when we can do that. Um, in David's case, it was very quickly. It was very quickly after the child died. He accepted the new normal. And this is a point where every grieving person has to come to. And if you lost a child or a spouse or a sibling or even a friend, you know this. You know that at some point you have to make a fundamental decision that says, you know what, I have more life to live. And the life I'm going to live moving forward is very different from the life that's in my rearview mirror because I've lost my spouse, I've lost my child. Life will never be the same as I knew it. Life will not be normal again. There will be a new normal. And David said, he's not coming back to me. There's a new normal. He embraced that and moved forward, and that results in some awesome fruit. David embraced the new normal. I encourage you to do that, particularly in this time here, folks. Um, we're we're going to have to embrace a new normal. Life as we know it is forever changing. It, we're not going to go back to a new normal next year. This will change us forever. You know, the, the quicker we can embrace that, the more healthy that we're going to be. Now let me give one other sidebar about this text. I just can't teach it and not tell you about this, especially if you have young children, infants, babies. One of the things we wish Scripture taught us more about is what happened to those infant children if for some awful reason they die in infancy. 
Um, this is a primary text in our theology of that, and Scripture does not have much to say about this. You need to understand that. But David certainly believed that when that child died, he was with the Lord because David had certainty that when he died, he would be with God, would be with the Lord. And he says, the child isn't coming back to me, but I'll go to him. So he's communicating that he believed, according to God's grace and mercy, that child would be present with God upon his death. And we believe that God has an arrangement and still does that today based on this narrative and Jesus' instruction where he says, let the little children come to me for as such of these is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loved the little children. There's a lot of other factors in that, but I just want to encourage you young families, particularly in this time of fear and concern, and we, yeah, I already know people, children who have this, and it's frightening. Um, Understand God's grace and His mercy. Even though He doesn't articulate that as well as we'd like Him to in the Scripture, we can have a certain hope that God will respond with grace and mercy if something that awful and tragic would happen to children. Final point now, and I love this, after David embraced the new normal very quickly, he then moved forward, and in this case through extremely negative consequences. David moved through negative consequences in love. In love. He moved through negative consequences in love. Um, and I've lost, hang, hang on here, let me get to my text. Verse 24 says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and he made love to her. Let's just think about that a little bit. David comforted his wife days after this child died. Remember what he did to this woman. He forcibly took her and forced her to commit adultery with him. He then had her husband murdered. So in addition to the shame and the guilt and the betrayal that she felt by adultery with him, he then has her husband murdered. So she's a widow. She's without and then she bears a child, and that child dies, and David is culpable for all of those things. You'd think that she would be long gone, or that he would say, Bathsheba, just get out of here because this is a mess. But no, David moved towards Bathsheba, his wife, and he comforted her. After they made love, sometime later she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. <laughs> I just want to pause and talk about how amazing this is. First of all, it's amazing to me that God's grace was strong enough to David that he could move towards Bathsheba and love her after all that had happened and all he'd been through. And you know what? Centering on God and repentance almost always results in the fruit of love. If we can get out of our self-centeredness, if we can pull ourselves out of that cocoon and recenter on God through our confession, through pleading for mercy, through worshiping Him and embracing the new normal, love is always going to result from that. Because God's heart will live and move through us. David loved Bathsheba unconditionally. And then it says God loved David and loved this child Solomon. Isn't that amazing? This child was conceived in adultery. 
And yet God loved him, and we know that because Solomon became the next king out of all these kids that David had birthed by so many women. Solomon became the next king, and God blessed Solomon more than God has arguably ever blessed anyone on the planet. Isn't that amazing? All this vile stuff that David did to dishonor God and how he'd sinned against God doesn't seem to restrict God's flow of love back to him. And we can have that confidence when we center on God. When we come back to him, Scripture clearly teaches us that when we honor God, he will honor us. And when in humility we come back towards him in agreement and confession of sin and worshiping him and embracing whatever consequences are going to lie before us, God's love will know no restriction towards us. That doesn't mean God exempted him from these really hard consequences. And we're going to share in future weeks of this series the result of this mess that David made because the sword did not depart from his house. And one of his own sons, Absalom, launched a coup attempt to take over the throne and to threaten his own father, David. These consequences are real, and David had to live with them. But because he recentered on God, because he worshiped God, he could, imb- he could move through those consequences with love. And God loved him, even though the consequences were there. Church, this is such a great template for us in this season right now to recenter on God, to worship Him, to embrace the new normal, and to move forward in love. That's what we need to do. The band's going to come back, and we're going to close with a song, but I want to I close with this illustration. Most of you remember that awful day that we now call 9-11. I was a pastor then. It was just before I came to Crossroads. I was pastoring another church. And none of us, if you were an adult then, none of us will ever forget that day. And honestly, as I assessed that and tried to lead people, I think it was clear to me the healthiest people after 9-11 were those who were the quickest to recenter on God and embrace the new normal. On that beautiful sunny day, it was sunny here as well as it was in Manhattan, I remember huddled around a television with two other pastors at my church at the time. And as we watched the towers fall in horror, and as an engineer, I couldn't believe, I was like, this can't happen. How is this happening? I remember we prayed. As it was happening, we centered ourselves on God, saying, God, this is unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever happened. And then that night, we held a worship service for our people, and over 300 people attended that service. And we prayed, and we cried out in desperation to God, saying, God, nothing like this has happened. We don't know what to do. We're afraid. We're angry. We have an enemy. And just to watch how the Spirit of God moved in that room that night through tears, through fear, through panic, through what ifs. At the time, gas was like five fifty a gallon. It was a crazy night. But we centered on God. And the peace of Christ ruled our hearts. And those people who most quickly centered themselves on God were the people who embraced the new normal, were the people who didn't vent vengeance against our enemies but who prayed for our enemies. Church, I think in this time of unprecedented cultural experience, the sooner we can recenter on God, 
The sooner we plead for mercy, the sooner we make a fresh commitment to worship corporately, personally, and in our family. The sooner we embrace the new normal, the healthier we'll be and the more loving we'll be to a world that so desperately, desperately needs the love of the Father. It's our missional moment, church. Let's center on God as never before and allow his love to flow through us. God, would you do that for your own glory? Would you empower your church with courage? Would you pull us out of our self-centered bubble and give us responsible ways to love and to help each other? God, would you help us to embrace the new normal without blame, without cynicism, without criticism, without judgmentalism? And can we just let the love of Christ flow through us? May your peace rule our hearts as we move forward into a new normal where we can still be on mission and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.